Hi, I'm Maytal, and welcome to Heal With It, a podcast about healing in its many and sometimes unexpected forms. For Lorenzo Lewis, growing up wasn't always easy. Born to an incarcerated mother, Lorenzo struggled throughout his youth. Loneliness and depression creeped up in the corners of his childhood. Many times, it felt like the weight of the world was on his shoulders. Luckily, there was one place Lorenzo could always turn to, one place he could find solace. And that place was his aunt's beauty salon in Little Rock, Arkansas. He loved it there. The smell of the products, the buzzing sounds of conversation, and most of all, the palpable feel of community. Here's Lorenzo explaining it himself. So my aunt's beauty salon was that place where people come to get their hair done or come to get their hair cut. And that was a place where people can really be, be themselves. And so as a young person, I saw that. Those transactions that I saw, healthy transactions, really helped me to understand that this could be a place that I could show up in. Growing up, salons and barbershops like his aunt's played a significant role in Lorenzo's life. As he fared through numerous obstacles like grief, loss, gang violence, systemic racism, and mental illness, the one thing that always allowed him to feel anchored and safe were his regular visits to his barber. You know, my barber was the one who could really bail me out of this kind of mental agony that I may have been going through. In 2016, Lorenzo realized that his experiences with his own barber had the potential to heal not just him, but the world around him. And this realization is what prompted him to create the Confess Project. The Confess Project is a national grassroots organization that's focused on building a culture of mental health for young men of color, boys, and their families. And at the root of our work, we're training barbers to be mental health advocates in their communities, using barbers as a peer support, early intervention model of distributing information about mental health, reducing stigma around mental health. But in addition, we also provide support to frontline leaders such as mental health professionals, K-12 educators, we're now starting to really train the frontline folks that are in front of young Black men and how to support them in regards to trauma-informed care and how to reduce suicide, ideation, completion of suicide. And so we're looking at our barbers as a very unique, unconventional model. But there are a lot of unconventional leaders out there that have just as much impact as our traditional therapists do. And so I'm excited that we're using barbershops, particularly as that incubator that helps to grow leaders, bring people to one comfortable place. By training barbers to be mental health advocates, Lorenzo figured out a way to make healing more accessible for men of color. Now, over 200 barbers across 16 U.S. cities have joined the mission of the Confess Project. Companies like Gillette and research institutions like Harvard have coupled with Lorenzo, and his program is only growing bigger and better. In today's episode, our season finale, you'll not only get to know Lorenzo, but you'll come to understand why his model for healing is so powerful, why it holds such grand potential, and why more of us everywhere 
should begin asking ourselves, what can I do to bring healing to my community? Lorenzo shows us all how it's possible to bring an entrepreneurial spirit to healing. There's so much we can learn from him. So without any further ado, let's dive in. Lorenzo, it's so good to see you today. Yes, it is. Thanks so much for coming on to here and talking about all the stuff you do. I can't wait for all the listeners to hear about it. Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I'm yeah, definitely grateful for the opportunity. Cool. So I think the place to start is just, what is it about barbershops? Like what was it that drew you towards training barbers towards mental health interventions? Yeah. So, you know, our barbers work it really started at the root of my childhood, you know, going to my aunt's beauty salon as a kid. I realized going there probably from the age of five that that was a place where people, um, black people can go and be themselves and be heard and be loved and really just be in gratitude of, of just being alive and being able to share those moments. Uh, particularly, it's not a lot of places in our communities like that. And so my aunt's beauty salon was that place where people come to get their hair done or come to get their hair cut. And that was a place where people can really be be themselves. And so as a young person, I saw that those transactions that I saw, healthy transactions, really helped me to understand that this could be a place that I could show up in. And so throughout my youth, I went to my barber every week and I realized that there was one of the few people in my life that was, became one of my first mentors. And so having that male interaction was really powerful. Beyond that, I went through a lot of other later life challenges, trauma, early um uh, incarceration as a juvenile. And so I realized that those issues really helped me to understand that that barbershop model that we have now, that we're partaking in, what if I had been able to have those safe spaces? Or what if I had to realize that, you know, also, you know, my barber was the one who could really bail me out of this kind of mental agony that I may have been going through. And so understanding that my early childhood, some of those issues really tied back into what I saw as a child and then I worked in the mental health field, and I realized also that clinicians were very much respected, uh, but also that our community leaders and people like barbers are just as much more have the social capital uh, to help people. So my early childhood, my experiences working in the field, my personal challenges really helped me to cultivate the work that we see today. I'm now training over 220 barbers in 16 U.S. cities. Incredible. What's the training process like? How how do these barbers get trained? I mean, I think you said it so well that it's kind of a natural fit. It just makes sense. But what sort of skills are they learning in the training process? Uh, they're learning to be great listeners, um, active listening, really dialing in on listening and not so much as reacting. People really want to be heard. They want to be felt. They want to be loved and they want to be minister to in a way where they feel they have your attention. I think we're in a world where it's really cloudy and loud. And so first on the spectrum of they're listening, right? They're they're performing this awesome grooming service and they're helping people to feel better than what they were before coming in. And so they're being a great listener. That's at the that's at the root of this. They're being able to validate. Validation is another piece of this. There's four areas, so active listening, validation. They're learning to validate their client's response, their feedback. Someone was to talk about 
having a hard day at work, having a hard day of losing a loved one, that Barbara's in a position to validate. And I understand and I hear you and I'm here for you. And that is really powerful when you start to think about the empathy that travels between that person's and how that relationship will be amplified. And we also are very huge on positive communication and how to eradicate negative self-talk through doing that. A lot of it with Black men, we come up in a world where it's very complex around racism, Black male identity, a lot of lack of fatherhood, systemic oppression. We need positive communicators that are around us that pursue a level of of love with, in regards to the language that's being put out. And so I feel that the positive communication is really huge because men oftentimes can feel that they're not worthy, that their manhood may fall short if they lose a job or lose employment. And so this identity of black men is a very, uh, that leads to a lot of destructive behaviors. And so having that barber there to do that is very powerful. And then lastly, stigma reduction, helping to reduce stigma. Oftentimes we know I'm a man, I'm strong. I don't need this. I can do this on my own. A lot of times that in itself can lead to individuals not wanting to seek professional counseling. And so a lot of that can lead to them feeling that the system is not here to take care of them or not to help them or that the world is against them. And so sometimes also that in itself can really become a stigma. Also beyond that, their childhood, you know, very typical. We've come up in a culture where We've went to the church to get the power that we need to get mental health counseling, and which, in fact, that's a part of it, but not the end goal. And so stigma reduction, that barber's in a position to say, hey, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to have to get counseling or to get help from someone other than your pastoral counselor. And so that stigma and also just the stigma of, well, man, this is crazy. This is a white folks thing. Well, this is not a my thing, and this is I'm better than this. And so they're in a position to eradicate that. And it kind of ties back to the communication, but more specifically, they're in a position to really uplift that there is a positive mental health and well-being, that there are uh, providers that are in place that are culturally competent to serve their needs, that there are people and uh, systems in place, you know, that are that are apps, that are a lot of digital health opportunities for folks to to scale their well-being to the next level. And so all of those things happen in a 45-minute interval of that barber cutting hair, which is probably one of the most, very most powerful things that can happen, I feel now, in America across the Black community, because the only way that that truly happens, if you're probably, you know, visiting with a friend that you really care for, or obviously maybe going to therapy, but the reality of it is a lot of these men and people from the you know African-American community are just not accessing therapy in that way. And so we're putting these barbershops in a particular place to know the language, to know what resources are, and to build social capital while doing so. So brilliant. <laughs> it just makes so much sense, especially when I think of barbers as these sort of mental health gatekeepers and these community leaders. And it just makes so much sense that they are in the position to break down stigma and to also create a space where this type of support is accessible. I remember you and I talked on the phone like a while ago and you mentioned that what's what's awesome about barbers is that they're not representative of this institution that has engaged in a history of systemic racism, the way the mental health field is. Would you be open to speaking more about that? I thought that was so powerful when we talked about that. 
Yeah, a lot of it is, you know, they are, you know, Barbara's civil rights, the civil rights are really, you know, the Malden brothers and, and Montgomery of Alabama really, the civil rights era really started a lot in, in the barbershops, the you know, voting, and even all the way to the NAACP. You know, there was a lot of power and liberation, rather, opportunities that happened in barbershops. It was a convening place where Black people can go to talk about different things in the community and also to really how they could change the landscape of, of the world and the things in their communities. Uh, I want to be very clear to know that the, with that being in place, we have always recognized this as a uh, as a place to, to render to, get help, to get power from. And so because of that nature, right, because of what the civil rights era has been able to, to embed into Black barbershops, Black people are very much more trusted of that. And in, in ways where if we talk about research on a uh, scientific level, individuals, they come from communities that don't look like them, but also some of the same institutions in which have hurt Black people or have mistreated the well-being of African-Americans. And so I think that in itself, also along with the the cultural disconnect, you know, let's let's be very clear. Uh, there's not many men that could probably wear a, a nice suit and a tie that's coming from a university to walk into a barbershop or a, a lady rather that can maybe speak to the language of black men and their experiences. And so, you know, I think what has to happen is that, you know, barbers are in one part of this and, you know, we have to think about technical assistance and capacity building to training and educating individuals who may not come from these settings come from these communities, come from the urban Black community, come from living in a Black household, understanding the complexities, understanding even what what racial slavery looked like decades, centuries ago, why that plays a huge part into why the distrust is still there. And so I think that's where we really have to understand that, yes, there are allies that want to be a part of this work, but also being very intentional that there's a lot of internal and external work that has to happen with individuals, particularly in the, in the white community, with the black community. And I think that we have to be very open to having those discussions. They're very hard to have. I think they're very meaningful, uh, particularly when you think about there's only 4% of clinicians that are people of color. When you talk about providing professional services, equitable services, we really have to look at educating and building capacity with the larger body of clinicians and scientists to understand how to work with black people. And I think that's really where we're going to win once we get to that place of wanting to learn and not figure because of privilege that we already know or we can intrude on doing so in some cases. And I think that's where we are is really crossing that channel. And so I think that right now in America, there's a lot of people doing this work. And um, I think that we're just um, we're just now really getting started with trying to figure out what is a 60-year-old mental health system, rather, has now has to change dramatically because of COVID-19 and some of the recent things that we've seen in regards of people having equitable opportunities and mobility and liberation and freedom to, to, to thrive just like uh, their other counterparts in the community. And so, you know, I think we all have to take that into consideration, realizing that privilege is huge at stake. And we're entering barbershops thinking about, what the historic it's also barbershops is one of the most one of the first entrepreneurial 
ways of how black people have been able to gain gainful employment and create generational wealth. It's one of the free places where they've been able to own the establishment. These are very powerful sentiments in our community where it means a lot more than just cutting hair. And so I've learned that through my studies of learning more about barbershops, that it's one of the second to oldest historical institutions other than the church. But it's also one of the fewest institutions in the community where African-Americans can actually own this place. And that, that plays a big part into the emotional value of what that does for the community, because it's, it's, it's also not owned by some corporation or some, some other group that we, we haven't ever heard of that's in our community provide services. So it's a lot of very personal historical value. And, and why this really means a lot, I think, to the work that we do and why really I think black men are really showing up to, to, to provide, you know, this uh, peer support to their, to their clients. So interesting to hear about the rich history of barbershops in Black America. And it's just so enlightening and even puts into more perspective and context how powerful what you're doing is. I really um, enjoyed hearing about your thoughts on the field as a whole and how the field needs to improve to serve not just white folks, but people across all races, ethnicities, different identities. What do you think, like besides the amazing work you're doing, how do you feel like the field could change and improve when it comes to serving folks with diverse racial ethnic identities? What would you change? I think a lot of it has to be the intent uh, from a top-down effect. I think we have to really look at our public policy, our laws that are in place, first and foremost, that govern the way that healthcare, the way that Medicaid is solicited, the way that opportunity to health, transportation, infrastructure and communities, food insecurities. I mean, we think about mental health, we got to think about such a widespread of, you know, insecurities and disparities, you know, across the well-being of a person and poverty and unemployment and racism, et cetera. So that, that's a much more of a grand conversation. But to be very clear about what you asked is that we first have to look at it, I believe, from a public policy perspective and understand that we are doing the right thing by people regardless of who people are and where they come from. And without no type of personal attachment to a personal gain out of that. And so we really have to know that we're doing right by people regardless of who people are because it's the right thing to do regardless of race, sex you know, orientation, whatever that may be, we got to do the right thing by people. And so I think that's where the work that we do, right, in this kind of inclusive space is really honoring and bringing up not only Black voices, but voices from the LBGTQ community, you know, voices from even, the you know, our other minority community, our brown communities as well, because we realize that we're all in this together. I feel that in a system beyond the public policy, I believe we really have to be to a place to want to learn, to explore. To think outside of the box, we have to start thinking about creative ways and community development through barbershops, whether that's you know, counseling taking place at a barbershop. You know, 90% of our barbers say they rather receive therapy inside of a shop rather than going to a counseling clinic. And a lot of that we got to know is racism, is disconnect, that's you know not being comfortable. So 
but these are probably majority of the people we know that need psychiatric services to some degree. And so how do you how do you really reach those people? We have to do it through these untraditional places and we have to bring therapists and professionals to these places, regardless if they're not comfortable or not, and do these really hard things that's going to help people so that we can get to the other side of things. More with Lorenzo Lewis after this short break. work you do is so, it's so thoughtful. It makes so much sense. And it goes outside of the box in this way that really works. And I feel like it could be a model for other settings, you know, other settings where train community members who are a large part of the fabric of the community already in these skills of helping people. So it's just so cool to see what you're doing. And thank you, thank you. I was wondering, I feel like people really resonate with stories. And I would love to hear a story about maybe one of your barbers or something you've seen in exchange between a barber and a client where you really saw your work manifest and come into fruition. Yeah, actually, you know, we I did an interview with Kelly Clarkson a little while ago. That's awesome. Yeah, I had a really good time. And one of our barbers from Louisville and had brought one of the clients on this was a young gentleman that went to the University of Louisville, um, I think maybe that was about two years ago, so maybe he was about a sophomore, was going through some, you know, relatively college blues, challenging times of just trying to maintain, have balance. One thing led to another. He, he was at the, the, the event we had at the barbershop, and he said this was the first time that he ever said he saw black men really talking about their mental health. And... I didn't know a little bit more after the fact that he continued to go to that barbershop and work with that barber, particularly getting his haircut being at the barbershop. It was right down away from away from the college, so it was walking distance. A little did I know that that relationship that they started to form really manifested there on the show. We They brought me on with the barber and the client, and I was more amazed that this has now helped the client to mentor young young men from his neighborhood has motivated him to finish college, um, has motivated him to be more open with other students on campus. That is really powerful in a way where I don't know if that would have happened prior to this. <laughs> maybe it would have, but maybe not. <laughs> so I would say that because he stated what the event did for him and what he saw we was performing for barbers to train to be advocates, but what the relationship of him and his barber had to where it manifested to being a leader in his community, to having gainful employment, to being open on campus, to helping more students that's probably struggling to gain hope. That's tremendous across multiple ways of his life. This is someone now who has a much more higher chance in America, in which a lot of cases, a lot of black men don't, to thrive in America and to live and to have peace, and to have success, and to, to, be, to be healthy and, to, to, and just to, um, to be happy. And I think that's that's where we are now is people are wanting to experience happiness and joy just and just to make it. And I think we're giving people an opportunity to really like be in full joy. And I think that's really beautiful. 
And so I was, I, I didn't know all of that had took place. I knew that he had been supported by the barber, but I didn't know that it had manifested to helping other young people, to helping people on campus. These are ways where we don't even get to gauge that impact, <laughs> but these are hundreds of other people that's going to feel this impact, right? And so that's where I think it's, wow, that's amazing. Amazing impact that, you know, he's now been a, a contribution to his community uh, because that's what we need. The Confess Project can't solve it all, right? We're going to need many people to do what he did. And we're going to need more people. And we're going to need those young people to help other young people. And so <laughs> that's that's where we are now. It's really creating change makers and lighting the fire under people. Once they've been engaged, how do we continue to create that impact long term? Incredible. Incredible to hear about the ripple effect and how helping and supporting and opening up about emotions almost becomes this contagious thing that keeps going and perpetuates itself. It's amazing. Absolutely. I, on the vein of storytelling, I kind of want to hear, I know you touched on it before, but kind of want to hear your story. Like, how did you end up here doing these amazing things? Like you're a huge change maker. You're teaming up with like Gillette and Harvard and going on the Kelly Clarkson show, like you're doing amazing things. How did you get to this point? So, yeah, you know, my, my story really ties back to, again, like taking a risk, you know, I, to do this work, particularly I, I left my corporate job and I realized that there was something burning inside of me that I had a story for the world, but I also had so much experience and I needed to not only share it, but hopefully that be sharing it will cultivate a ripple effect of changing the mental health complex in which we're, which we're working with. And so I'm so glad that I took that risk. But even more in depth, you know, my mother was incarcerated when I was born. You know, my mother and my father was um, living a very fast life. And um, I like to think even more back further is, is that they had a, um, I think, a lot of challenges within themselves. They come from the South, two towns of, of you know, of poverty and kind of lack of access to health care and you know, come from a family of incarceration and some of these kind of more grandiose things that really what we see ripple out into um, the mental health effects of people. They were incarcerated during this time and um, mother wanted to birth. I think about that in itself, incarceration and what incarceration does to black men on society, what does it does to families. And to think that that's where it started for me, it gives me hope because I'm glad that I'm not there today because systemically I should be, right? I mean, especially think about recidivism and some of the kind of larger things that takes place in our justice system. And so I was reconnected with the justice system at 17 and with the juvenile. And, and during my youth, I like to say I went through a lot of challenging times. A lot of it was depression, undiagnosed depression, separation from my mother and my father, separation from my siblings, identity. I think these really brought upon a lot of emotions, a lot of kind of harsh realities for myself. And so that's my background and who I was, my experiences. I was involved in games and, and a lot of kind of destructive behaviors. And again, I think a lot of that was my mental health, again, undiagnosed. Mm. And so now I look back and I realize that that was my storyline, but it definitely was not a part of, it's a big part of my purpose and the work that we do now and so how there's so many men with similar stories you know, come from a family of dysfunction, come from a family of people being separated from fathers and mothers and through the system and, and all of these things. And so that's my story and who I am and where I've come from. 
my journey, I think now it's really shaping that journey to doing the work that I do now. And I was privileged after being released at 17. I had one more shot. You know, the judge told me, said, hey, this is this is it. You know, I had a very serious offense with a firearm. And she said, hey, this is it. You know, if you come back here, go into prison. You know, I was one month before being 18. And I said, hey, I'm going to go to college and I'm going to get this thing right. And I went to college and college really gave me an opportunity to springboard to get into where I am now. It gave me another outlet. You know, I got away from my environment that I grew up in, got away from the people that I grew up with, that I hang with. And things have really just shot over. But the the more crucial opportunity that happened was that I started working in a juvenile system literally three years after being released. And so while in college, to get me through college, I went back and I started working at a juvenile facility. And so I was able to work with the younger version of myself, not realizing the impact that I would have had being that I was in the same juvenile system. And that led me to a nine-year career in mental health. I left that job and I started working in facilities with children and adults with very moderate to severe psychiatric illnesses. And so that in itself gave me, again, another layer to do the work that I do today, to understand the, the competencies and the patient community, the mental health care policy, and a, a lot of the things that come around working at an inpatient hospital. I'm so glad that I've been prepared personally, professionally to do the work that I do. I'm just glad that I'm able to talk about it publicly and and, and, it, and, it, and it gives people hope because there's a lot of people that's not willing to do that, you know? <laughs> so I'm really grateful of having that opportunity. And that has developed now a national movement, you know, of taking my childhood experiences, my issues of you know, being incarcerated, issues of undiagnosed depression, you know, mother and father having a lot of, you know, kind of granddaughter's problems. And really bottling all that up to what we see today and making it a reality of a grassroots initiative that meets people where they are, of also giving people hope, empowering them, and really changing the narrative and reducing stigma, uh, which is a huge issue. I think it's so incredible to hear about how your pain was transmuted into change and social justice. and how systems that maybe failed you, you've now come out on the other side and you're working to reform these systems. You're working to contribute to that change. It's just so amazing. And one of the reasons I am putting together this podcast is because I want to inspire people to think out of the box, to create these programs that reshape the system, that challenge mental health. And so I'm wondering, like, how did you get Confess Project up and running? How did you start this? Like for someone who's listening and wants to start a movement or wants to start a program, what advice would you give them to do that? You know, honestly, the the, the most intermediate advice that I can think about is to know yourself and love yourself. And that comes across very simple to to know yourself, to 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 fall dearly in love with yourself because you're going to have to give yourself to others in a way that you probably hadn't planned on ever giving, or you're going to give too much at times. And you have to, your self-worth at the core of this is really important. Mm. You know, I think about, I did a lot of therapy when I first started this work because I came in contact with so many challenges from my childhood. I came and took so much challenges with, you know, working with people in the community and like my anger, you know, a lot of depression is, I'm clean. I have clinical depression, so I think about the issues that come along, like with anger and impulsivity, and some of these things. And so, it took a lot of work 
to get to a point where it's like, oh, we're where does national movement now with offices in Arkansas and Atlanta and now trying to put one in Los Angeles. And so it took a lot of believing in myself first, right? And loving myself for who I was before this, because a lot of it with trauma, you don't feel that you deserve what you're, what you're getting. So it's a lot of it can be, you know, imposter syndrome. I don't, I don't think I'm good enough. And, And a lot of it, when you went through childhood trauma, the way that I have, you're very, if you went through any type of trauma, it's very likely that you may feel that you don't deserve better. It also is particularly coming from black and urban communities. Getting a high school diploma is a good, probably the, it's chaotic. I mean, it's a big deal. You know, getting out of school, become a first generation college student is a big deal. And so sometimes that's it. And then in the scope of trauma, but it's more. And in the scope of trauma, you may try to tear yourself down. And so really understanding your self-worth, your love and loving yourself and, you know, centering that first alongside a lot of hard work. <laughs> you know, it's, it's going to take a lot of work. You're really um, this, you know, if, if we're if we're innovatively identified to do the work we do in barbershops, I, I give a lot of support. There's a lot of people doing amazing work in this space. But innovatively, when you're doing something that that's not, you know, we, we didn't have a history book to look at. We didn't, there wasn't a whole lot of research. We didn't have a book, I mean, to go and say, how do you scale this model <laughs> to doing this? I mean, I've even spoken with researchers at Google, really smart people. There's just not a clear way to do it, you know? And so it's it's going to be some trial and error. It's going to be, we got to do it this way. Oh, we need to wait. We got to go back. We got to start, you know, you have to have a lot of support as well with people that help you to to get through those moments. But also you have to be very courageous and thought to, to really make sure that you can stay in the race. It reminds me of being, I mean, part of what I do sometimes is I'm a therapist and it's the same thing for me. Like I can't serve clients unless I've done the work myself. So it just makes so much sense what you're saying. Self-love, do the work. What I also heard, which I think speaks to your strength, which has come out in so many ways, hearing your story, your tolerance for things being messy. Like you said, there's no research. There's no blueprint for how to do this. You are figuring it out as you go. (laughs) And it's like you have the tolerance to make mistakes and learn from that and keep going. It's so amazing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, when you think about the statistics of mental health, you know, uh, one in five million Americans will have a mental health disorder. We think about, you know, black men, suicide is the third leading cause of death for black men and boys under the age of 20. Fourth leading cause of death for black men and boys between the, over the age of you know, 20 to 44. When you think about these numbers, when you think about, you know, suicide is triple with black women and girls in some cases. Huh. I mean, there's a lot. This is <laughs> This did not happen overnight. This has been a very, very long process of we need to change. And so, I'm, you know, we have to think that any of the work that we do in regards to working with humans and working with, with brain health, this this stuff is, 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 is not a blueprint. You know, even that's why, that's why I talk about revamping a 60-year-old system, right? That's, we're still talking about the DSMV and some of these things. And these things is obviously very credible in nature, but there's a lot of pivots that's going to have to be made. When you think about the population and how a lot of the infrastructure how it was created it's not the same as what it was you know then to now 
And so we really have to look at catalyzing a new way of looking at the health and well-being, mental health and well-being of, of all people more than anything. So, Absolutely. I'm so excited to see what else you're going to come up with and what else is in your future. What do you think? What do you think lies ahead? What do you see you putting together in the next like decades? Yeah. Uh, you know, my goal is that I, I want to, with the Harvard research, I'm going to be published any day now. I'm excited working with them is really giving us the understanding that the program will be of substance, hopefully on the road to becoming evidence-based and really being able to work at the federal and state level to making this curriculum a mandate, you know, in, in every barber and cosmetology board. That's a huge change in how we approach things from a policy perspective. And so with the best practice and the research that's behind it is really using, continue to do more research, continue to implement, and obviously get more funding to to find out more ways to develop and grow the work. Um, I think long term in the next decade is taking the work international. You know, I would love to take it to other countries as well as really figure out a way to use technology and kind of get into this this digital way of working with mental health and connecting with people. You know, the next 10 years, I, I think health is going to look totally different. Life is going to look totally different. COVID is obviously going to help shape the way that things really look. And so I'm hoping that we can use technology, the infrastructure of artificial intelligence and these different things to really amplify the way that the barbershop movement looks, the way that this training, again, like you said, can be amplified across social services sectors and positions and, and, and frontline leaders that are, you know, working with people across multiple, you know, working with vulnerable populations. And so I'm excited to use this to to replicate it to other industries. One, first and foremost, to to put this where it's a, a mandate at the state and federal level um, for barbers to continue education across the world as well as really taking the work over into a, looking at it from a global mental health perspective. And so I'm I'm really excited to be that type of change because I, I feel like that's the change that we need. And I know, as you know, the, the numbers are and the data shows that global mental health is just as much of an issue as what it is even in the States. So, yeah, um, I don't think that we've, we don't, I don't want to limit ourselves to our full potential, to what we really could be just by, wanted to stay within the kind of our normal capacity. So, you know, but I'm, I'm really grateful that we're able to go across metropolitan cities. Now, hey, we came, we was a group out of the South with, I'm, I didn't go to one of these big schools and I'm not a doctor by trade. We made a reality happen for nothing, to be honest with you. So I'm glad that we've made it this far and I know that we can go even further. <laughs> and the reason why I say it that way, because there was a lot of odds stacked against us because of that. You know, um, there was a lot of disbelief. Mm. Didn't know if we could do it or not, <laughs> you know, and so a lot of rejections and a lot of trial and error that's been involved in with that. So I'm glad that we're now not only just noticed, but that we're trusted, that we people believe that we can do it. And that's that's what matters because and so um, the, the validation that we've gotten, it just empowers us. To, we got to do more now. We just can't accept. OK, we've gotten the validation. We've gotten the funding to do the work. Now it's time to uh, to go further and go deeper. And so I'm glad that we're not being comfortable to that, you know, to just taking what we've gotten is how do we go deeper and how do we really change the world at this point? I can't wait to see what you do. I have so much confidence that so much more is ahead just from, you know, following you and 
our conversations across time. If people want to learn more about you and keep tracking the awesome work you're doing, where do you suggest they follow you or kind of track your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Confess Project website is, I think, our biggest way to connect. www.theconfessproject.com. Um, also on any of our social media channels. Yeah, looking forward to just connecting more. Uh, glad the work that you're doing here. Uh, really excited to see uh, what you're the great people that you bring in and the energy that you transfer. Uh, really excited to see how they work. So thank you again for the, for the opportunity. Of course. Thanks for coming on to here. Thank you for listening to Heal With It, a podcast brought to you by Camille Breslin and me, Maytal Eyal. Please listen and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on Instagram at Heal With It Podcast. Audio engineering for Heal With It was done by Camille Breslin and Miles Mercer. Original music by Miles Mercer. Creative direction by Eric Fletes. Art and illustration by Alexander Bustamante, Mercedes Llanos, and Samantha Mash.